Morning, everyone. Welcome again to our uh, Monday morning live devotional, working through the F2 Bible reading plan. If you uh, are still looking for a Bible reading plan, uh, there's wonderful time to join. It might seem like your New Year's resolution was forever away, but the good news is we are still um, in the first quarter, at least for this month of the year. So there's plenty of time to hop on board um, and to uh, read the Bible with us. One thing I love about our whole church going through this is it makes opportunities like this uh, more enjoyable because we get to read with other people. It makes opportunities like Wednesday with our Bible reading group more enjoyable. But also, um, I love inviting other people in to hear what they've gained from God's Word um, and uh, reading through the same thing with the same people is a really good opportunity uh, for that to happen. Um, I, uh, I hope you guys had a great Easter yesterday and all of the distinctions that that day brought. Um, I think I may have mentioned this. I think it, I'm going to mention it in the interview that's coming up tomorrow with our Italian missionaries. But uh, in, the, in the history of Christianity, uh, I don't think we can underscore the uniqueness uh, yesterday was. Um, really the first time in Christian history since Pentecost that the majority of churches across the globe were not able to gather on Resurrection Sunday. It's just kind of a unique thing um, that reminds us of how good the gospel is, that our hope is not in the hopes of this world, but our hope is in um, the God who is running the world and the gospel that this world cannot take away. And so um, on that note, today's uh, Bible reading is great for that. It's actually a wonderful uh, story to follow up Resurrection Sunday with because we see a lot of triumph. We see a lot of Jesus in this text, and we see how um, the way of the Lord does not look like the way of the world. And so we're in 1 Samuel 17 and 18, and I'm going to give you... Um, just a little bit of summary of what it is we're going to look at today. Uh, it is probably a story most of you have heard, the story of David and Goliath, and then a story of kind of David's successes. And uh, I'm going to give a, just a, a, a broad level view. It's easy to just zoom in on the story of David and Goliath at this point. Um, but there's something more important going on in this text that we're going to come back to in a little bit. And what we see in this text is we see the kingdom. God has removed his hand from Saul. We saw that in chapters um, preceding this. Saul, or, uh, David has been anointed as the future king, even though Saul still sits on the throne. But the Lord had left Saul and had anointed David. And through these two chapters, we really see um, the, the weight of kingship the head of the kingdom transition to David, even though David doesn't have the throne. And we see that in this big military battle um, with Goliath, David acts as the true king when Saul is too scared to do so. And then afterwards, we see that even Saul's son, Jonathan, pledges his heart to David and makes an oath to David. And then after that, we read of more of David's military victories. And then all of David's family, or excuse me, all of Saul's people, all the people of Israel are one to David. And they sing this kind of mocking song where uh, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And so Saul is already um, being supplanted by David in the minds of the people. And then lastly, we see that David marries Saul's daughter um, and D Saul 
for the dowry price, asks David to go kill a hundred Philistines, hoping that the Philistines would just kill David. But David goes and he kills 200 Philistines um, and he takes Saul's daughter and they have this, uh, this, this relationship that, uh, that is full of love at this point. And he continues to flourish. And so at this point, David has supplanted Saul in battle. David has won the heart of Saul's son. David has won the heart of Saul's people. And now David has won the heart of Saul's daughter. And all of this has to do um, with the Lord being on uh, David and not being on Saul. And so there's this shift in the book of uh, 1 Samuel where we see the kingship of Israel, the true kingship of Israel is not who sits on the throne. It's the one whom God will choose, which is exactly what we saw in Deuteronomy, right? The God says, you will desire a king and you'll pick the one whom I will choose. The choosing of God sets the kingship of Israel. And that's an important thing for us too. Um, and so we see the story of David and Goliath. Just a quick summary here is that um, for those who haven't heard this story, uh, the, the big bad wolf to the Israelites at this time are the Philistines. And so the Philistines are out in battle and they've been here for 40 days with Israel. And what it looks like is, uh, they draw their battle lines every day and the Philistines send out their champion, this man named Goliath, who is big and strong and has armor that most people can't even carry because it's too heavy. And he comes out and he, uh, asks for basically a representative battle. You, Israel, if you can send out a man to defeat me, uh, this will decide the battle for you. But Israel is far too scared. And so 40 days, they do this dance of Israel standing back in fear, Goliath coming out from the aspect of the Philistines, mocking Israel, mocking their God. But then David comes and David goes to bring supplies. He's the uh, He's just the, the DoorDash guy for his brothers who are in the army. And he sees what's going on. And he uh, starts asking, why is no one fighting? Why is no one um, going out and challenging this man? And so Saul calls him into his tent um, and David says, I'm going to do it. And Saul says, you can't do it. You're a boy. And David says, as a shepherd, I've defeated lions. I've defeated bears. Um, this, this, he says, this uncircumcised Philistine. In other words, this enemy of God poses no threat to God's people. And so you probably know the rest. Saul tries to fit David in, in Saul's own armor. It doesn't fit David. So David goes out with nothing um, but a staff and a sling and some stones, goes out to face Goliath. And Goliath opens up by saying, who is this who comes against me with sticks? Um, and he basically uh, insults the God of Israel. He says that today the Philistines will conquer over this God. But then David has this really great... Um, speech at the end, David said to the Philistine, this is in verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give you the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle of the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And so that, then it goes into kind of David's accomplishments where you see the kingdom being taken away from Saul. And uh, that's the summary of the text we're looking at today. And so if we're just going to go through the, the look up, how does this text teach us about God? We're going to do the look in, what does this text teach us about ourselves? And we're going to look out, how does this text shape the way we live as Christians, church members, image bearers, uh, husbands, fathers, sisters, daughters, all those things. Um, we're going to walk through that 
now. Uh, and for some people, this perspective is not new at all. And for others, it's very new. But the story of David and Goliath um, is not a story about us going out and conquering our giants, um, because that's not how it's set up. Uh, at this point, Israel is looking for a representative king and the representative king of God's people isn't you and it's not me. Uh, and so what we see in this text is very clearly that he is contrasted with Saul in all of this. And we're going to look more at that when we get into the look in. But we see David who comes, this one who is anointed by God to lead God's people. And the first thing that stands out is that he is zealous for the fame of God. God's name is worthy of being defended. God's name is holy. And to have other people mocking, scorning, um, making little of God is something that history has shown does not work out well. Uh, God will be glorified in this earth. And the way in which he will be glorified is not only through his plan of redemption, but through the faithful acts of his people. That's where God's sovereignty to accomplish his means and our responsibility to be actors come together. Um, the, the story of scripture, the story of our lives, the story of David and Goliath is that God's glory, God's fame is the most prized possession of both God and man. And here we see the king this king who is David, David who is a type of Christ as we see through scripture. He's pointing us to the true king from the line of David, the one who will sit on his throne forever, the true shepherd king, Jesus. Jesus is concerned for the fame of God's name. Um, if you look at uh, the book of John, the gospel of John, that's Jesus' primary concern is that Jesus has come to expand and display the glory of his father. And so it's the glory of God that consumes David. It's the glory of God that consumes Jesus and led Jesus to the cross. Um, and it was the glory of God that we see in Romans uh, that raised Jesus from the dead. We just had Resurrection Sunday and Jesus didn't raise himself. Um, Romans says that he was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father. There is nothing more comprehensive. There is nothing more comforting. There is nothing more motivating we see in this text than a right view of the glory of the God of Israel, the glory of the God of Scripture. And what we also see um, is as it relates to Jesus is Jesus is the exclusive shepherd king who does what we need. You see, the truth is, in this story, we're not David. And there are, there, there are implications, and we'll get to that, as to how we ought to live bravely in light of what Jesus has done. But in this story, we're not David. Um, we are the people of Israel who are held captive by our fear, unable to go out because we're, we're scared of what's out there. But Jesus is David. And just as a shepherd defends his sheep, so God's king will defend his people. And that's really what we see in this text is David, um, in his intimate devotion with God, looks back at God bringing him deliverance and saving his sheep from a bear. God brings deliverance from his sheep in allowing David to defeat a lion. And David is not at all confused as to how he did that. God helped him. God was the one who gave him the ability to do that. And so when he comes here, he realizes that uh, nothing has changed. The God of Israel, his God, the God he has seen work in his life is still just as strong and just as powerful, even though it's Goliath and not a bear and not a lion. And so David so clearly sees, just as Jesus sees as our true savior, that it is the glory of God that helps 
God's anointed king accomplish what he needs to accomplish to save his people. Our shepherd king is going to fight for us. And like David, he is not going to use the weapons that we want to see. He is not going to use a geopolitical force. He is not going to use um, the prosperity gospel. He is going to use things that seem foolish, that seem reckless, that are laughable by our enemies. And yet God uses the exact means which will accomplish his purpose so that, as David says, you may know that there is a God in Israel. Why has God sent Jesus to die on the cross? John tells us the same thing in the end of the Gospel of John. He has come so that you may believe, so that you might know that there is a God who is capable of solving problems that you cannot solve. That's the big story of David and Goliath when it comes to us um, in looking at it. We see this glorious God who sends his shepherd king to fight for the fame of his name, which is also for the good of God's people, right? When David goes out and fights for the fame of God's name, what is the side effect? God's people are liberated. And that's where we begin to transition from the looking up and seeing what this passage shows us about God. And now we begin to look in. What does this say about us? And I think it's really interesting um, if you've been reading in here, even if you remember the sermon I preached two weeks ago, uh, why, why was it that Israel demanded a king in 1 Samuel 8? It was two reasons, so that we might look like the other nations and so that he might fight our battles for us. And here we see Saul, and what is he doing? He is not fighting the battles for Israel, is he? He is scared inside of his tent, and what's interesting is he's actually trying to bribe his people to go and fight the battle for him, right? He says, if anyone goes and does this, I will give you a daughter for marriage. I will uh, lift the burden of taxation on you. I will give you money. That king, uh, who is not God's king anymore, remember, God has now anointed David. Saul is kind of just a stand-in king, finishing his reign. That king is not fighting the battles for Israel. In fact, it's enslaving Israel. It's calling Israel to do things um, the, the king was meant to do. It was the king who was meant to lead his people in battle. And we see that's actually where David falls with Bathsheba. His armies were out and David was not out with them. And that led to the sin of David, which led to the demise of the kingdom. But God's king always fights for his people. But false kings, false saviors, false gods always try to, they, they come to us and they promise the power of a king. But the experience we actually have in their promise is the experience of slavery. Uh, when you look at what you think will bring you peace in this world, we pledge allegiance to so many things. But at the bottom of those allegiances is a king who actually needs us to do it. That's what idols do, right? We see this beautiful passage in Isaiah um, where he says the man who, I think it's Isaiah, the man who um, builds an idol does it out of the same piece of wood and he takes half of it and makes that into an idol. And he takes the other half of that piece of wood and he burns it to cook his food. In other words, there's nothing different from the idol that you worship to the simple fact that this is the what you burn to cook your food. And when we look at our own lives, um, are we able to discern places where we have a king that we are hoping in, a king that we are pledging allegiance to, but who is in all reality taxing us, burdening us, and never actually able to provide it? And this can show up in so many ways in my own life. This could show up... Um, in uh, legalism, in work, 
Uh, one thing this COVID-19 thing has exposed in my heart is um, there's really not a lot in ministry that's observably efficient. Uh, it's, it's all like long. It all takes a, a view of grace to see what God is accomplishing. Um, and which is why I love coming home and mowing the lawn because the lawn was high and now it's not high. It was tall and now it's short, like a mission accomplished. But pastoral ministry is very rarely like that. I never go into a discipleship thing and say, now, aha, this person has been discipled. Uh, and I don't even have the capacity to do that. Even if it were possible, that's something only God can do. But in this, this separation, whatever measurables there were in pastoral ministry, are no longer there, right? I don't get to see that affirmation um, from uh, a task list that that is being shared or a person that I'm helping in a tangible sense. It's It's been removed. And so my temptation for validation is to just bury myself in menial tasks so that I can look at the end of the day and I can say, aha, look at what I have done. Look at what is observable in my life. But the truth is it just enslaves me. And um, we need to be mindful that those kind of things can't, my heart will not find its purpose in what I do on my own might. In fact, uh, Psalm says, David says this when he's hiding from Saul, actually, uh, Psalm says, I will hide myself in the shelter, shadow of your wing till the storms of destruction pass me by to God, uh, to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. You see, it is God and his work in our life that brings us purpose, not what we've done. And because of that, we can disregard all the false kings that we so desperately cling to. And we can say, where am I not seeing Jesus as beautiful? And that's the other thing of looking in is um, the reason why David won the hearts of the people of Israel here and then in chapter 18 is because all of Israel saw for 40 days the size, the scope, and the rippling muscles of Goliath. And when Goliath was defeated by David... David became wonderful to them. It was no small trifle. And we see that because of the comparison with Saul, right? When the people are praising um, Saul, they say Saul has struck down his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Why are they drawn to David and not to Saul? Because David is so much more visibly mightier and accomplished than Saul. And so in my own life, the question is, do I rightly see the size of sin in my own heart? Do I rightly see that when, when we use the phrase all the time, our greatest problem is the sin that separates us from God. But do I really see that? Do I really understand the weight of that sin? And we start talking about that. A lot of people are like, why are we focusing on sin? Why aren't we focusing on love? But the truth is love becomes greater when sin becomes weightier. And so if we're able to look at our hearts and actually see the places where we are rebelling against God, see the dark, icky spots of our heart and how we respond to our roommates or to our spouses or to our kids. Um, we see how great Jesus is, that he has come to defeat all of that. And we see how big Jesus is. Um, then we're able to worship him, not as like this forceful mustering, but as this natural response to the one who has done something wonderful in our lives. David, as he goes on, begins to win hearts because the spirit of the Lord is on him. And how much more is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the one who this Easter weekend came and reminded us that he has conquered sin and death forever and all eternity. How much more is he able to win our hearts to himself through grace? And so when I think of myself, I, I want to ask myself, am I able to see the wonder of Jesus? And one of the ways that I'm able to do that is by looking at my own sin and considering the love of God the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, which overcame that um, for my sake. And then lastly, 
in looking out, um, what I love about the story of David and Goliath is we, we are in this passage. It's not that because David is Jesus, there's nothing practical in here, but because David is Jesus, we can actually rightly organize our own life because the truth is, is if you just focus on a Goliath, if you focus on something big, you might overcome it and, and good on you, right? That's the, the triumph of the human soul is we can do hard things, but if our own, um, zeal for godly living comes in accomplishing really big, massive feats. It's really one, there, there's, there's two problems with that is one, we could easily shift into a prosperity gospel and say, because I'm Christian, I can, I can kind of speak into existence, all of these wonderful victories. And if I don't have victory, then I just need to follow God better. But that, that leads to the second problem. Um, it, it entraps us again. Because if I'm not experiencing victory enough, I just need to follow God more. But what happens if you keep following God and you keep following God and you keep following God and you don't get these victories? Well, then someone says to you, worship God more. And so you just try to worship God more and more and more and more. But the truth is, is that we are not called to defeat those things. What we all are called to do that we see in this text is we're called to see what Jesus has defeated. And then what did the people of God do? They pursued the Philistines. They, they went and they finished the battle. David killed one person. The people of Israel killed all the rest. And so for us, we have now this Holy Spirit that has inspired, that has indwells us through faith. And it, calls, it, it carries us to do wonderfully brave things, not by our own power, but because of the power that like fills our sails, uh, because of the weight of redemption. And so we can look at sin in our own heart and we don't have to be scared because we know Goliath is dead. We can look at COVID-19 and the death that this world is shaking with, and we don't have to be scared because Jesus has beheaded death. Um, and so when you look at life as a disciple, as an evangelist, as a husband, as a mother, as a brother or sister, um, there are things in this world which will be scared. The people of uh, the, the Philistines still had weapons. There's still war to be fought. It wasn't something that wasn't scary and didn't demand effort, but the people drew that motivation from the conquering of David and the people of God um, in the New Testament through the Holy Spirit are able to do things because the Holy Spirit has given us the empowerment to accomplish things for the glory of God and for the good of each other. We have seen the true and greater David and that should lead us to live differently in life. I like to call it cosmic cow tipping, right? They, I've never gone cow tipping. I see Sean is in here. Maybe Sean, you seem like someone who's done cow tipping before. Um, but uh, we're just going up and we're pushing over cows. Um, Jesus has done all the hard work for us. And we just follow in his stead to do what he's called us to do. And the wonderful thing is he has empowered us to do it. And so um, looking up, we see this glorious shepherd king whose fight for the fame of God's name is also a fight for the freedom of God's people. And so the, the glory of God is really the most practical good in your life. In looking in, we see the danger of a king like Saul, the danger of trying to find a king on our own timeline instead of God's timeline, which looks like a king, but ultimately ends up enslaving us. We see that if we want to see Jesus as glorious, we need to understand soberly uh, the size of the Goliath that stands before us and how we have no ability to take him out. But Jesus on the cross does. And then in looking out, we see that because we have seen the greater uh, David conquer the greater 
uh, Goliath conquer sin and death, we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue what what um, God has called his people to do. God has God didn't call his people to defeat Goliath. He called his people to defeat the Philistines. And when David defeated Goliath, God's people could continue with that program. So too do we continue in the program of redemption, of going forth into all the nations, um, teaching everyone uh, the, the whole scripture, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, knowing that this shepherd king will be with us always, even to the end of time. So that is um, 1 Samuel 17 and 18. We focus more on 1 Samuel 17 because it's kind of the pivot point for the rest of the book of Samuel. Um, we'd love to have you guys join us on Wednesday as we continue. I'm not even sure what we'll be reading yet on Wednesday. Um, but thanks for stopping by this morning. Hope your post-Easter week goes great and you are able to enjoy a frigid but sunny Monday morning. Thanks guys.